Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Today in the Morning Glory Project, I'm happy to welcome just a different slant on a story that we've told before. We've told a number of stories about folks who have come back from injury, from catastrophic accidents, from strokes, from different kinds of things, but we've never talked about it from the caregiver's angle. So today we welcome to the microphone here at the Morning Glory Project, Cynthia Lim. Cynthia thought that she had a perfect life with her family in Los Angeles, a loving marriage to a husband who was a successful attorney, a fulfilling career in education, two teenage sons. And then in 2003, her husband suffered cardiac arrest that resulted in profound brain injury, changing their lives forever. Married for 20 years at the time, Cynthia didn't know how much of her husband's former self would return. And in her memoir, Wherever You Are, a memoir of love, marriage, and brain injury, Cynthia shares her caregiving journey. It's the story of re-envisioning life with a disability and discovering the real truth of love and marriage. Cynthia holds a doctorate degree in social welfare and is retired from the Los Angeles Unified School District. She's a writer, traveler, quilter, and hiker. She's currently working on a second memoir about her family's immigration story from China. Cynthia Lim, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Welcome. Thank you, Betsy, for having me. So, Cynthia, I was touched by one thing in the reviews of your book that I kind of want to start with, and then then I'm going to ask you to tell me a bit about your story. But I was touched by the comment that I read that said that ultimately this is a love story (laughs) and also that it's a story that answers the question, what makes life worth living? Those are extraordinary blurbs, as they call them, on the back of your book, and I was touched by them. Can you tell me a bit about your life before 2003? Yes. So before my husband's brain injury, you know, we were like a lot of of families uh, with teenage kids. We had kids. Our our kids were in school. We traveled. uh, We had this very rich life with music, and the kids were in sports, and, uh, it, you know, it, 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 looking back, at, you always think, oh, it was such an idyllic life. Like, you know, our main concern was, oh, where are we going to go backpacking this summer? Or where are we going to travel on our vacation? So we had a very comfortable, complacent life prior to that. A happy marriage? A happy marriage, yes. My husband and I, 
we're college sweethearts and um you know we just liked spending time together and being together as a family the four of us so this idyllic family as you call it and i believe it was i'm sure you had the same households that everybody else has too but it sounds as though the the, the basics were there and and way more than the basics in terms of not only your comforts but your affections for each other and your opportunities for travel and those things together. But it sounds like then things changed radically. Tell, tell me about the incident of your husband's health that changed. What, what happened that day? Yes. So we were vacationing in Portland, Oregon. We were there for uh, Perry's cousin's uh, kid's bar mitzvah. So we were just going to go there overnight, you know, to for the bar mitzvah and come home the next day. And he had a heart attack that if that evening he went into cardiac arrest. So you were in the hotel? We were in a hotel room. Yeah. And the paramedics, you know, didn't get there until like seven minutes later. Hmm. Um, and so he lost oxygen to his brain and he was in a coma for two weeks. So we were in a city that wasn't our own. Um, and we were stuck there for, you know, 10 days until he was medically safe to to move to Los Angeles and he was still in a coma the whole time. So, you know, when this happened, it, it, I think the doctors in Portland gave us like a 15% chance of survival that he would ever wake up from this coma. Well, let, let me pause you there for a second because I just want to, I kind of want to slow this down and, and think about that. To be in a hotel room a thousand miles away or more, I don't know how what the distance is, but at least a thousand miles away from your home and your husband's in a coma. You, you know, I think that lots of us, we've seen the, the, the heart attack on TV a million times, but if you haven't been there to experience that, what were you, what was your experience of that? Oh, it was like sheer panic you know, and you're trying to remember what was it, you know, what was it that we learned in CPR class and what could we do? And there's just that whole franticness. And then when the paramedics come, there's, it's like an army of paramedics and they swarm the room. And I guess it's just the sense of bewilderness. You know, I think when anyone's in that moment of crisis, you have this sense of disbelief and then you have the sense of bewilderment, like what what am I supposed to do? What can I do? Um, and then, you know, we were just planning on being there overnight. So, you know, we had all the wrong clothes and, you know, didn't have our belongings. And You weren't prepared for a 10-day hospital adventure? No, no. And were your, were your sons there with you as well? You know, so it was it was complicated. They came later. We flew up. Uh, Perry and I flew up there earlier, and they had this big hockey game that they were playing in that they wanted to be in. So they came after their game. So they got there after he was taken to the hospital. So, in in a way, I wonder if you sort of think that's merciful that they they didn't have to witness what you did. Yeah, it's it's a messy thing. It is a really messy thing. Yeah. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. So so then you you transport back to Los Angeles and how long did your did Perry stay in a in a coma? He woke from his coma a few days after he came back. 
uh, after he was back in Los Angeles. And there was that moment of jubilation that, you know what, he woke up and he, he made it through because, you know, the, the prognosis was just so dire. And then when he woke up, there was this elation of, oh my God, he made it, he's alive. And then, then there was the realization like, oh, I don't think he's quite the same person that he was before. So tell me about Perry before and after. Well, Perry was a, a really smart guy um, and he had this wonderful sense of humor. So, you know, we used to always laugh because he would he could tell me the same joke over and over. And I would laugh every single time, <laughs> even though I'd heard it before. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. he had that kind of timing uh, that would just make you laugh. So he was he was a very jovial loquacious you know he loved to talk so when he woke when he first woke from his coma he would talk but he wasn't making any sense and that was so frightening because you know we weren't sure how much was going to come back and what was coming back and whether what he was saying was making any sense at all and did he seem frustrated by it or did he seem unaware that it was so scrambly he seemed totally unaware hmm. yeah so then there's the process of recovery. Yes. And and speech therapy and occupational therapy, all those things. What what was the in addition to his his speech, what what else was different? Well, you know, he was so he was in an, an acute hospital for about a month, you know, just really laying in a hospital bed. I mean, the you know, physical therapists would come and try to get him to sit up. But he wasn't really, he didn't walk at all until he was transferred to a rehabilitation hospital like 60 days later. So he had to learn how to walk again. He had to learn how to eat again because he was on a feeding tube. And so it was a really, really long rehabilitation journey. And during that time, I had to really fight the medical staff because they wanted to put him in a nursing home. They wanted to take him straight from the hospital to a nursing home. And, you know, I toured a nursing home and, and saw like there, there isn't a whole lot of rehabilitation going on in these nursing homes. So I had to really fight to say, I want to put in a neuro rehab facility. And, it, you know, it took a lot to do that. I mean, you have to be like a full-time advocate well, that's, what I was just going to say is, in addition to being a wife and a mom who's just undergone this trauma of the change in her husband's health status, then you have to become an advocate and fight with people and research and learn about a whole world that you don't know anything, or I don't mean to presume, but a world I wouldn't have known anything about Yes, to kind of figure all that out. So you're navigating in waters you've never sailed before and having to then on top of it be tough and assertive and even pushy because you, it sounds like you were fighting the medical professionals as well as I'm guessing your insurance. Yes. Yes. And you know, no one sits you down and, and explains this is how insurance works. You know, like your plan covers this many days. Um, it wasn't until you know, long into his rehabilitation when he was, when I was ready to bring him home, I think, or I can't remember when, at a certain point, I just thought, oh, well, you know, I, I should bring him home. It's the best place. And someone at one of these facilities sat me down and said, no, 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 no. 
send him to a rehab, you know, residential rehab facility, because if you don't take that benefit now, you'll never get it back. Like your insurance will pay for a hundred days of it. But if you take him home, those 100 days disappear. You'll never get that benefit back. And doesn't that kind of stuff, it's so flippant irritating because yes. it's like a secret code that nobody knows and you enter this new world and I, here's the question. It's kind of like the question I ask my son when he comes and does something on my, fixes my computer somehow and does, you know, click something I didn't know. And I say, well, if you didn't know that, how would you have known that? Like, exactly. in other words, how can I have figured that out on my own? And he always says, I don't know. I just knew it. And it sounds, <laughs> it sounds like that's your experience with this. It's sort of like there's a secret you know, if somebody hadn't stopped you, your instinct was bring my husband home. I want him to be comfortable. I want him to, to rehabilitate in a comfortable environment, which is a nice and loving instinct on your part, but it would have totally messed him up if, in terms of his care. Exactly. And, you know, at that point we weren't even, we were not skilled to deal with brain injury. At You're that naive time. about it, I imagine. Oh, yeah, because he went through and, you know, every every brain injured person goes through this phase of agitation where, um, well, they say it's like your brain is trying to write itself. Mm. So you go through this this period of agitation where you're you are. It's almost like a psychosis, you know, that you're not really yourself. You're acting out. You're aggressive. And so he went through that phase. And luckily he was at a neuro rehab residential facility going through that. Where they knew what it was. They could feel that they didn't take it personally. They didn't right. freak out about it. They It was a predictable course. He was in the hands of experts at that point instead of your own. And, you know, it, it must be said, I, I'm sure you feel this way, Cynthia. I, how dare I presume to know how you feel? But I'm, I'm going to guess that, you, you know, you count yourself as fortunate for having health benefits and those kinds of things that not everybody has that yes. it sounds like the coverage, even though they made you run through some hoops and you had to be an advocate in that way, there was at least the resources there to have that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I worked for the school district. They had these wonderful benefits, mm -hmm. right? Wonderful health insurance. And, you know, and I consider myself pretty well educated. I mean, I, you know, I, my profession is in social work. But even for me, it was just a, a befuddlement of like, where do you go? Who's there to really explain things to you about how this works, what programs are out there? So I did place him in a, a residential facility for 100 days for as long as my insurance paid for it. And then he came home and he was, you know, he had gone through that whole agitation phase. So he was much easier to deal with at home, but he still had, you know, bouts of agitation. And then the next part was, what do I do with him now? He's home. I can't just like park him in front of a TV. To what degree was he physically limited? And like, could he have stayed at home by himself? No, no. He um, physically, he was able to walk. And so, you know, we did a lot of things outdoors. We even, we went hiking again. Um, but he he didn't have any short term memory, and mm. he and he couldn't initiate speech. So if you asked him a question, he would respond, but he wouldn't ask you a question or initiate a conversation. So and he had to be around somebody twenty four seven. So 
you know, he was incontinent. He didn't, couldn't really take care of himself and he couldn't cook for himself, although he could feed himself. Um, but yeah, he needed somebody with him 24 seven. So that was, then that was a whole nother journey of like, how do I find resources in the community? So I'm working full time and I'm just scouring the, the neighborhood and the community, like what is out there for a 47 year old man, he was 47, that, um, that is brain injured. So there are a lot of senior programs, but you know, he wasn't old enough. Uh, there was some daycare kind of programs, but again, uh, he wasn't old enough for, for many of these. So it was a, it was, um, it was really frustrating. I just had to search and find, you know, different programs. And as I'm listening to you talk, Cynthia, I'm I'm thinking about how there are kind of three layers of this battle that you were in, in a way. There was just the strictly medical, you know, and the the medical and the financial, figuring out the the systems and the insurance and the, the, the medical material that you needed to understand. Then there's the practical stuff of getting care and all, and you're still raising two teenage kids who have you know, hockey practice and <laughs> all yeah. kinds of things and a job to go to that you need, I presume, because you have the benefits and all of that. And then there's the marriage. Yeah. And to some degree, you lost your partner. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, so, you know, obviously he couldn't work. He couldn't work anymore. He, um, he wasn't someone I'd have these deep conversations with like we used to have before his brain injury. But I think the saving grace was he, one of my friends said, you know, it, it's like he was stripped of his intellect, but what was there is, was just his kind heartedness hmm. and the, the essence of him. So he always, always recognized me and the kids he was always happy to see us. And so I think it would have been so different if he had come back and not known who we were and not felt that same kind of joy and love for us, mm-hmm. but he did. So um, it's really hard to describe. Like you have this, you know, severely disabled husband, but the minute you walk in the room, his face just lights up at the sight of you, which you know, it's, it's kind of hard to describe. Well, it, it, it sounds like so much was lost undoubtedly. I I don't want to minimize that of all at all, of course, but it sounds like the essence of the love remained. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, with my kids, I think we, we decided early on, like we had such a nice life. We're going to try our hardest to maintain that life, even though he's disabled. So, you know, we still traveled, we did road trips. Uh, You know, my oldest son went to college in New York and we went to New York a few times to visit him. Uh, So we were still able to do uh, a lot of our travel. We still, we still went hiking in the Sierras in the summer. Like we didn't backpack and camp anymore, but you know, we would rent a condo and go on day hikes. So we tried as much as we could to 
see what, you know, see what we could still enjoy of our old life. Mm. Well, it, it sounds as though, and, and I mean this with no insult at all to, to Perry, but it sounds almost like having another child. Yeah. You know, when, you, when you have a toddler, you can still go hiking or whatever, but you know, you're going to have to carry the diaper bag and you're going to have to, you're going to have yeah. to do things a little differently than you did before you had children. And it sounds like you could still, still do some of the same things that you did, but you had to adapt them for his new condition. Yes, definitely. There, you know, there was this one time with my youngest son, Paul, um, that just the two of us went somewhere once without Perry and we, we got out of the car. We were both like, oh, we don't have to like help him out of the car. You know, like we kind of just get this, this automatic reflex, like you get out of the car and then you help Perry get out of the car. So we both looked at each other like, oh, wow, we don't have to do that right now. And I imagine that there are moments that are pretty freeing in that way. Yes. Um, you know, he, he passed away in 2018 and, um, and, you know, in the throes of caregiving, I used to think it would be a relief to not have to deal with this anymore. But actually, with his death, I think any kind of relief was just overshadowed by grief. Mm. Yeah. I'm so sorry that you lost him. And that you lost him twice, really. You know, you yeah. in two phases, I guess. Yeah. What were the times when you were by yourself? What, what were the times that it got really hard? I think maybe when the kids uh, went, went away to college and it was just me uh, taking care of him. And uh, I got promoted in my job to, you know, even more responsibility. And those days were really hard. When I look back now, I mean, at the time, I don't think I, I knew how hard it was. But looking back, I'm wondering, how how did I do that, you know? Well, that's going to be my next question, you know. How did you do that? I think when you're in the throes of it, you just put these blinders on and you just do it because you know it has to be done. Um, and I think an, another part of it, too, was my work was so encompassing that it was it was almost like an escape from you know, dealing with the responsibilities of caregiving. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I, I would leave the house at seven in the morning, commute downtown and just nose to the grindstone and just work, 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 and then come home and put on the caregiving hat. But it, it, but you get so engrossed in it that you don't, you know, you don't even stop to think like, Ooh, this is kind of hard. Do you know what I mean? You just do it. It's it's like walking a tightrope and not looking down. <laughs> yeah. You just got to put the one one toe in front of the other and ease across. I'm wondering what what sustained you during that time? It sounds like part of it was work that you could escape. You and you got some assistance with Perry's physical needs while you weren't there. But what do you think sustained your love story and your heart and your your own energy during that time? Well, I, you know, I think one part of it is, is still finding love in him and still loving him in that condition. And I think the other part of it too is support, which is so important for anyone. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote this book was to really reach out to other caregivers because there's a, there's a sense of isolation that you feel when you're in the throes of caregiving, like, you know, 
you're in this all alone. But I really had strong sources of support. My best friends live across the street. Our kids grew up together. Um, you know, we used to backpack and travel together. And we continued to do that after Perry's brain injury. And that was so important to have those links to your life before and people that knew you before and treated him the same way as they did before, treated me the same way as before. So I I feel really lucky that I, I had some close friends that helped out. My family's very close, um, his sister. So I, you know, whenever I did feel isolated and very alone, there was always kind of somebody there. You know what I mean? There was like that, that safety net that I always felt like there's somebody I could turn to. Well, it's a community, right? Yeah. Yeah. You had your community of loved ones and, and then of course the professionals as well. If there's someone listening who perhaps has fewer resources or less of a network of support than you had, is there any kind of resource that you discovered that you think would be beneficial for them to know? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I met uh, some women. We formed a little, we formed our own brain injury support group. They were all women who, whose husbands were brain injured. And, and it was wonderful to just have that outlet, you know, to be among other women that were going through the exact same thing. And how did you form that? I think I went to a brain injury conference and just, you know, started talking to some of the other women there in a group. And um, yeah, I think it formed out of that. Hmm. And we, you know, we just, we met loosely. I mean, I, I didn't attend as much as I would have liked to because I was working and they, we met on the weekends and I was reluctant to get a caregiver on the weekend because I had one during the week. Um, but it was just nice to know that there were women there. And recently, um, I joined this association called the Well Spouse Association. Say it slower for me so I can know what it is. The Well Spouse Association. The Well Spouse Association, yeah. And it is for former caregivers and current caregivers that are caring for their spouses. It's a wonderful organization. I delivered a keynote for them last year or in 2019. I keep thinking last year is 2019. Um, we all do. <laughs> <laughs> so the Will Spouse Association is something that anyone can join if they, whether or not their, their disabled spouse is still living. Right. And conduct there. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing that there are also Facebook groups devoted to this and ways to network online with people. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, yeah. You have to, you have to reach out, you know? And I think that's, that's the hardest thing too, when you're going through this is, is the reaching out um, and accepting help too, because I think a lot of people would love to help. They just don't know how. Asking for what you need. It's sometimes a hard thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, your book is beautiful and it, and it is a very special kind of love story, I have to say. So the, for those of you there, it's called Wherever You Are, A Memoir of Love, 
Marriage and Brain Injury by Cynthia Lim. Cynthia, thank you so much for sharing your beautiful story. It's it's no doubt that your family is as lovely as it is in large part to who you are. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Betsy. When I think about my conversation with Cynthia Lim and all that it takes to be a caregiver, it's just a huge task, isn't it? It's something that many of us will face at various times in our lives, whether it's for an aging parent or a disabled partner or, God forbid, a disabled child or friend or love their loved one. And I just think about the stamina that it takes. And I was touched by how Cynthia talked about, you know, I just didn't think about it. I just did what I needed to do. And I sometimes think that there's a certain amount of tunnel vision in a way that's helpful when the mountain seems just so, so big that sometimes all you can do is concentrate on the next step. And it seems that that's in large part what she did. The other reflection that I have in terms of another extra bloom is maybe it's the extra bloom of anger. (laughs) It makes me angry that systems into which each of us might be plummeted for whatever circumstances, whether it's the medical system or the legal system or the penal code system, the prison system, if we have a loved one that goes to jail, we're foreigners in those lands. And it seems that there are secret keepers (laughs) that, and there's a code that you have to learn and a vocabulary you have to learn And it seems that now and then there's a merciful person who says, hey, look, here, here's what you need to know. And we get kind of cued in if we're really lucky. And if not, we're navigating on our own. And it makes me angry that our insurance system and our medical system are so hidden from us in those ways, that there are secret codes and secret tripwires that we can fall over if we don't find somebody to help. So my extra bloom is that inevitably when we'll need to face the medical process, whether for ourselves or a loved one, that I'm going to ask for help. I'm not going to try to figure it out on my own. Just because you're smart doesn't mean that you have to know everything. So I was really touched by Cynthia's story of how asking for help and having a community of people around for the practical assistance, but also for the assistance of the heart that that knew her before, that could love her through this, that knew Perry before and could love him through this. That was a big deal. That helped her get through. That's how she got through what she got through. And that's a pretty good extra bloom for today. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. I wish you health. I wish you happiness. I wish you comfort. And I wish for you that wherever you are, you find your way to bloom.